Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 13 and verse 50 through Acts 14 verse 28. And now, here's David. Thank you, uh, music team. Is this on, Ted? Right here? Yeah, there we are. Thank you for that uh, time of singing praises to God and the worship that we were enjoying together. Um, welcome everyone here this morning. Uh, we have some faces that I met for the first time, so we're glad that we can meet you folks and uh, welcome. I would just like to say on behalf of the elders that uh, we thank very much, Bruce, your service as an elder, and uh, we wish you all many, many blessings at the youth uh, work, and we will miss you as an elder. <laughs> uh, we tried to stretch him a little bit more, but, you know, there's a limit to how much elasticity we can pull on people. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much. Let's just bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your uh, presence with us. Thank you that you came and lived among us. And we pray that as we look this morning at uh, this message that has been broadcast around the world, that you would help us to to see and understand more of what is uh, uh, involved in, in making you king in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I entitled this talk this morning, it, it's from the Acts chapter 13, verses 50 to Acts 14 to the end of that chapter. And my title is, You Are Entering the Kingdom, Expect Rough Roads. So I was wondering what, in, in what you uh, would think it, would someone would have to say or do to get run out of town here in Timmins. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty dramatic thing. Can you think of anything that, you know, well, there might be some things you can think of. Uh, so maybe we can pretend a bit of this scenario. Um, uh, what if someone came into town and began to promote the complete elimination of the hunting of animals in the area? You know, so you imagine somebody doing that. Maybe a number of people would get on board with that and join them. They might become quite vocal in their support of this idea. It become quite vocal in their support of this idea. A campaign that would get many people talking about the idea. And you can just imagine the social media buzz. And before long, I expect there would be some pushback, right? You know, there are people who like hunting, who think it's important. And those who support hunting would refute the ideas of those who wanted hunting banned. And the local leaders and authorities might see hunting as an economic uh, boon to our economy here, so they would would oppose such a ban. So that would be a, the story. And the conflict could get nasty and maybe even violent, and it's not hard to imagine, especially in these times. There might be actually uh, threats against those supporting the ban. 
And I would expect there would be calls for the one who came and started this whole thing to go away and go back to wherever you came from and leave us alone. And, you know, that's sort of an imaginary scenario. And you can put whatever issue you want in there. And I didn't pick that one because of any personal bias or because of any personal <laughs> vendetta. I just thought of something that might stir us up. And that might be it. In our passage today, we're going to look at the repetitive experiences of Paul and Barnabas as they were run out of town over and over again. From these experiences, I would ask a number of questions. What did they promote that was so offensive? Why was it offensive to the communities which they visited? How did they deal with this opposition? And how do their experiences compare with ours? And why might they be different? I'd like us to begin by looking at one verse towards the end of the passage we are considering today. And if you have your Bible, since I don't have the screen yet, you can turn to Acts chapter 14 and look at verse 22. Acts 14, 22. I'm going to read it for you from the New English Translation. This is what that verse says. It's in the, towards the end of the passage we're dealing with this morning. Starting a little bit towards the end of the passage, we'll try and put it back together. So this is Acts 14.22. They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. So I realize I've just separated this verse from its context and generally that's something to be avoided but I want to begin here because I would like us to keep a few ideas in our thoughts as we look at the rest of the passage. So this verse is meant to strengthen and encourage but at first glance it would seem to have sort of the opposite message. You know, to be strengthened and encouraged I'd rather hear that life is going to be pleasant and easy rather than filled with trouble and hardships. So how is that going to encourage anybody? Well, if life was going to be filled with trouble and hardships, it would be at least encouraging to know that's not a surprise and that's what we might expect. And so don't be discouraged. Now, this is the experience of many of our brothers and sisters around the world. And indeed, we we highlight one country every week here, one country that's experiencing the truth of this first, that there are... There is many persecutions. And there are no shortages of stories that we could share. As a matter of fact, it seems like the world outside of our personal experience is filled with persecutions for the Christians out there. So we we can see that the kingdom of God has many grim opponents. Perhaps another thing that seems a bit odd in this verse is the statement that the entrance to the kingdom of God is through the experience of persecution. But wait a minute. Aren't we saved by faith alone? And what does persecution have to do with getting into heaven? Well, perhaps there are at least two areas of misunderstanding if we read that verse as some verse referring to salvation. The first would be that with our concept of entering, In the usual use of the word, to enter means to go into or to move from one place into another. And that's certainly one meaning of the word um, used here. It is interesting that in Colossians 1.13, Paul uses a different word when he writes, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in to the kingdom of the son he loves 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The phrase brought us into in this verse also means to move from one place to another. But in Acts 14, the word for enter has that's used there has some other possible meanings. Even in English, we use different ways, uh, the word enter different ways. We might say that we have entered an agreement, meaning that we have initiated something or we've been become part of something, a part of an undertaking. The word that Paul uses can have that meaning, plus it may also be used in the sense of developing something. In that case, we might understand that the kingdom of God is developed through persecution. In other words, the advancement of the, of the kingdom will inevitably lead to opposition. And this should not come as a surprise to those who listened to Jesus and saw what he endured. So, one interesting statement uh, that Jesus made is found in Matthew 10:34, and Jesus has been telling his disciples that they will can expect persecution when he makes this sort of counterintuitive statement. He says, "Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword." What did what did he say? What about the being the prince of peace? What about peace through the blood of his cross? What about that peace and goodwill to all men that we sing about and hear about on Christmas? Well, those are all true, but here Jesus is referring to the fact that his kingdom is in conflict with the world. The powers of this world are not going to willingly give up their power, and there's not going to be any truce talks or negotiated peace settlement between Jesus and his adversaries. So there is no peace agreement there. It's a conflict. Does this reference to the sword mean that Jesus' kingdom will be established by violence? Will those of his kingdom be expected to violently resist persecution? Well, in the Gospels, we never see, I don't think, Jesus wielding a sword. We see a bit of a half-hearted attempt by one of his disciples at the time of his arrest, but Jesus said, stop that. That's not what we're going to do. He also told Pilate at that time that his kingdom was not from this world. If, his, if it was, his servants would be violently fighting, but they were not, and this was not his way. The only time in the New Testament when we see Jesus with a sword, the only times are found in John's vision of Jesus in in the book of Revelation. In these visions, Jesus does not have a sword in his hand, but it is coming out of his mouth, which is kind of a very bizarre image, I must say. But the message that, that, that he gives then, what's coming out of his mouth, his word, is the sword. It is not the sword of conquest, but it's the sword of a message, which is the means of the, of the conquest. The writer of Hebrews states that the word of God is sharper than any sword. And Paul tells the Ephesians to arm themselves with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So these are not talking about physical uh, weapons. Rather, they're the message that God has us to hear. It is the message of Jesus with which the kingdom is advanced, not with violent aggression or resistance. The second misunderstanding might be in our concept of the kingdom. So what is the kingdom spoken of in Acts 14.22? Is it heaven 
or is it something to come in a future time? Or is it our salvation? I'm, I must say the, the, the um, theology of the kingdom, the, the understanding of the kingdom is somewhat complex, but I would suggest that the kingdom is what Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. I think perhaps we have underrepresented the importance of the kingdom in our teaching. We may have casually thought of it as something for the future or maybe something heavenly as opposed to earthly. I wonder if we may have missed something of its importance in our present day lives. Perhaps our thinking about the gospel needs to be enlarged to include something about the proclamation of the kingdom. Jesus said, as is in Matthew 24:14, um, and he identifies there that the gospel or the good news is the kingdom. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to all the nations. Sounds an awful lot like Paul and Barnabas were involved in that preaching the kingdom through to all nations. And that's what they were beginning to do. Rick Warren, uh, I like his definition of the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is king. And that could be in our hearts. It could be in our church. It could be in our community. Paul and Barnabas were introducing King Jesus to the Gentile world. Dallas Willard, another writer, writes, Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. He proclaimed it. The message of Jesus and the word of the Lord that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed was the kingdom. This is the sword that they were wielding in their assault on the kingdom of darkness. This was the good news. A new king has come. He offers freedom from sin's bondage and hope for the oppressed. He brings new life and victory over death as the resurrection savior of the world. So with that rather lengthy look at verse 22, let's put it back into the, its context. And that context is that of Paul's and Barnabas's first missionary journey. And as Dave Jenkinson told us last week, Paul and Barnabas had been directed by this Holy Spirit to proclaim the word of God to other regions. So they had started out, and this is a little map, it's a bit dull for you, but that's the area of the world we're talking about, Greece on the on your far left, and the country of Turkey on this side, Palestine down here on this side. So they left from Syria and went into what would be present-day Turkey to, uh, to start this ministry. And here's a little bit of a cl- closer uh, view of it on the next slide there, Steve. Yeah, so a bit more zoomed in. Dave took us through Cyprus there last week and into Antioch, which is up on the top uh, left of the screen, Antioch, different Antioch from the one that's over here in Syria. So that's where they, we pick up the story there in verse 50 of our passage. So as Dave covered last week, the, the, the message that Paul and Barnabas had brought had stirred up the city. Everybody was interested in hearing what it was and nearly the whole city turned out to hear them and that in, enraged or made the Jews who were sort of, hey, this is our turf, that made them very jealous and uh, caused these unbelieving Jews to become very jealous. And, and Paul would understand that. He used to be one of those very people. So we start at verse 50. And those Jews um, 
who had rejected Paul's message, started a smear campaign. You could sort of follow this story along in your in your Bibles if you want. I'm just uh, riffing it a bit, a bit here. And started, they started to smear these apostles. They probably started with some malicious gossip, maybe, to the high society Gentile woman. Interesting that these, these were God-fearing Gentile women, part of their synagogue, but they were well-off, and they would have had well-off and wealthy and influential husbands. So start with them, get them to talk to their husbands, and they'll start bad-mouthing the, the apostles. And next they made some maybe false accusations to the leading men of the city, the politicians. And I wonder what they might have said. I expected that they pointed out that Paul and Barnabas represented a threat to their positions of power and influence in addition to their uh, wealth and lifestyle. So things, uh, you know, these guys are not good news uh, for you guys. Paul and Barnabas... uh, they, they thought they probably told them Paul and Barnabas may be starting a social revolution, an uprising of the slave and poor. And it's interesting that the rich and the powerful seem to be most likely to react against the news that a new king had appeared. But the poor and the oppressed and those feeling that way were more, more welcoming of this idea that there's going to be a change in their status. The news meant change and change is not welcome to those who already have it. Good. So these people threw Paul and Barnabas out of the region. They ran them out of town. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet. That was something Jesus had instructed his, uh, his disciples to do when they were rejected at a town. And it sort of symbolically said, we don't have anything more to do with you. You're on your own. This is under your, your own uh, responsibility from now on. But, the, but interestingly, at the end of this chapter in 13, says the disciples remained joyful and spiritful, full of the spirit. That's the, the believers that had accepted this message of hope and the kingdom. They were experiencing this new life. And even this uh, uprising re- opposition didn't dampen their, their experiences. So on to, Icon- <coughs> Excuse me. on to Iconium. Ch- <coughs> chapter 14, verse 1. Paul or Luke writes, the same thing happened there. <laughs> so it's getting a bit repetitive here. We get the same story going over. Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue, presented the same message with the same results. Large number of Jews and Gentiles believed, but those Jews that refused to believe stirred up the opposition. But Paul and Barnabas courageously persisted on in their ministry, performing miraculous signs that were supportive of their message. But there was division, social disruption, splits within neighborhoods, disagreements between friends, household arguments. We know something of what that could be like from our recent experiences in our own social experiences. So it's not an easy time. This was disrupting to the social order, a threat to the authority and security of the political powers. Something had to be done. So the Jews and Gentiles, the leaders of these groups, made a plot to kill them, to stone them. So it was, again, it was the politically powerful that conspired to get rid of these guys, but their, their opposition has become a little more violent. Instead of just running them out of town, they were going to actually do, them, do away with them. But... Uh, um, Paul and Barnabas uh, got wind of that and were able to leave. 
So I, I find it interesting that the powers in this world may may um, be the face of the unseen world powers. It's, it's the political powers that seem to be mostly in opposition. And Paul in Ephesians writes some interesting stuff to the Ephesian believers. He said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And Luke in verse 2 of chapter 14 said it was those Jews that refused to believe or obey God that were the ones that started the opposition in Iconium. So is that an indication? I think so, that they were acting on the prompting of the principal adversary of God, the one who is called the devil, the one who is the, the, uh, the adversary, the one who works against God's plan and purpose. Acts 14.2, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. The apostles learned of this plot. The conspirators, I guess, were not very good at keeping a secret and they, they got out of town. Does that show a lack of faith? Couldn't they trust God to protect them? There's a saying, I think it came out of something Shakespeare wrote probably, that uh, discretion is the better part of valor. And, uh, and yes, God could protect them. Maybe, maybe they would have been killed if they'd stayed. But to stay and be intact may have brought unnecessary hardship to the church there that might have started something they didn't want to start. Or maybe they just took it as an indication that God was telling them it's time to move on. <laughs> Let's go to the next town. And they did. So... On to Lystra. So just a side note, in Acts 16, a couple of chapters later, we find that Lystra is Timothy's hometown, just a kind of an infor- informational thing. So we, we know Timothy from other parts of the scripture. This is his hometown. His mother and grandmother must have lived there, I would expect. So they might have been the ones that heard Paul and Barnabas speak uh, this time. So Luke changes up the story a little bit. He didn't repeat and say, and the same thing happened there. (laughs) Instead, Luke gives us one day snapshot of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and Lystra. And just that one day, but what a day, what a day it was. And uh, I think Luke sort of intentionally is connecting this story here to the one that Peter, uh, he told about Peter in chapter 3 of Acts, where Peter heals a lame man for Here we start off with uh, the the, uh, man who was lame being cured. Paul, like Peter, is validated as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The action starts with the introduction of this man who's unable to walk from birth. He's never been able to stand. Paul is speaking. uh, As he is speaking, he becomes aware that this man is responding to the message. He can see that he's putting all the dots together and that he has come to faith in Christ. So Paul dramatically says, stand up and gives him the command to stand. And miraculously, strength is immediately given to this man's atrophied muscles. And if he had any contractures, they are released. And he leaps up and stands for the very first time on his own. He has been released from his affliction. He could walk and he did. And the crowd is stunned and amazed and they immediately connected this event to a story in their culture. 
And I need to interject here a little details, a bit of detail from the Lyconian culture, this area where they were in Lystra. There was a story that the people there knew that they would have all heard. It would have been like a Sunday school story for us, the well-known stories like David and Goliath. But this would be a story that was often repeated and told. And it was included, we have it included in a collection of stories by the Roman poet Ovid in his comprehension, comprehensive collection of ancient stories called Metamorphoses, which was published in 8 AD. So when Jesus was just a boy, this was when he published this collection. And in this collection, there's this story. And the, briefly, the story goes something like this. And this was a story that the local people know. So in this story, Zeus, a Greek god, he was the king of the gods. And Hermes, the herald or spokesperson of the god, both of the Greek pantheon, decided to test the hospitality of a town in this area. So they came down in the town to the town in the guise of ordinary peasants. And the townspeople were very inhospitable. Zeus and Hermes knocked on many doors and they were turned away from everyone, from everywhere, that they asked for lodgings. So the, the town was very inhospitable. Until they finally came to the home of a poor old couple called Bausus and Philemon, and this couple offered them food and logic. And eventually the couple discovered that they've been hosting these gods. And Zeus and Hermes tell them to get out of town. The town is going to be destroyed. And as they get out of town, they turn around and see the town devastated by a flood. So the whole town is wiped out. But they are granted the privilege, these two older couple are granted the privilege of being a, the guardians of the temple of Zeus and to live on after death as a pair of entwined trees growing together. So that's the, the story that, that uh, was told. And now with that background in mind, you can imagine when they see this miracle, the people get really excited because here they are, Zeus and Hermes have come again. Let's not blow it this time, guys. <laughs> let's get them worshipped and let's get them uh, looked after because we don't want to be flooded out here. So we're going to really put it on. We're going to give these folks a really uh, big welcome. And they immediately start to make plans to worship them there. The priest of the local temple of Zeus brings sacrifices to be offered to Paul and Barnabas. These apostles, Jewish apostles, were suddenly horrified when they understood what was going on. They said, this is blasphemous. You know, we're not gods. And uh, they had to tear their clothes, which was the Jewish response to blasphemy, and they rushed out into the crowd and started to implore them to stop what they were going to do. And Paul just tells them, we are just men, just like you. And we just come to proclaim some good news. I'm sure that the good news that he had proclaimed included the news that God had indeed come down in the form of a man and come to earth. And that they should turn, Paul said, from these worthless things wait a minute, Paul, what did you just say to these people? You just called their things worthless. You know, you, you need some sensitivity training, Paul. You know, really, come on. This is not something you should tell people right at that. And, and uh, yeah, Paul called their beliefs and practices worthless. Worthless, a word in the Greek that carries a, a number of meanings, had no value, useless, devoid of truth, fruitless and powerless. Okay, Paul, well, you've really done it now. You take the foot out of your mouth and, and start to apologize. No, Paul says, no, I didn't do that. The kingdom that Paul was proclaiming had exactly the opposite qualities, value, 
usefulness, reality, truth, fruitfulness, and human flourishing, and power to change people and the world. So in this kingdom, the king was the living God that had made the world, Paul says, that he was the one who gave them everything, including food, rain, and joy. And even having called their religion worthless, and after all these things, they were able, scarcely able to stop the sacrifices. But the mob can be a very fickle thing. And uh, it's kind of a mob uh, psychology is kind of uh, interesting to study. A little rumor here. Hey, these guys have been kicked out of two neighboring cities. A bit of half-truth there. They're trying to start an uprising. Did you hear them call your beliefs worthless? Uh, A bit of play on the fears. They have come to destroy your way of life. And they, these Jews that had, been come, had come from Antioch and Iconium began to work the mob. They began to stir it up against Paul and Barnabas, and they worked the mob into a frenzy, and they picked up stones and stoned Paul. Okay, so it gets to that point. And they stoned him until he was unresponsive, and then they dragged him out of the city and left him there thinking he was dead. We might be tempted to think that Paul really did blow it here. You know, he had the crowd in his hand. They were just amazingly impressed by his, his miracle. He could, they could have enjoyed the popularity for a time. You know, let's let them have their celebration. Wouldn't it have been better to get the church established and have these good relationships and then work on getting them to understand that their things were a little bit worthless, but not to put it so bluntly. That might seem prudent to us, but I think Paul was right. You can't belong to both kingdoms. This has unfortunately been the response of the church at times. Take a bit of the local culture, mix it with some teachings of Jesus and, and put it together in something that's very palatable for people to swallow. And that leads to confusion and a watered-down version of the kingdom. To finish the story, the disciples that were, had become believers, they're gathered around Paul in a protective circle. And amazingly, he revives and gets up and goes back into town. Well, uh, that's what he did. But the next day, they leave for Derby, where they begin again telling the good news. Interestingly, Luke doesn't record any opposition in Derby, even though many there became disciples. But after a time, Paul and Barnabas become concerned about the disciples that were in those cities which had suffered persecution. So they return and visit each church as they backtrack along their route. They wanted to strengthen and encourage the disciples to continue in faith, to live in and to continue to advance the kingdom of God. And that's the verse that we read. We must enter the kingdom through many persecutions. In other words, when you challenge the powerful, you can expect trouble. In order to help the churches continue the development of the kingdom, Paul and Barnabas chose leaders for each of the, the churches, people could overse- who could oversee the building up of the disciples. And then they prayed and fasted. Part of their weapons that they used against this persecution was prayer and fasting. And then it was back home to the home base for the debriefing. So in the remaining seconds, we might take a moment to compare our experience with the churches mentioned. Have we suffered persecutions like they did? I would say not in my experience. Is persecution necessary for the church? 
Well, the church in Derby didn't seem to face the same level, although Luke may not have recorded it. Some say that persecution is good, but I, I would suggest rather that to say that persecution, uh, rather than it is required, I might say that persecution would be expected if we are advancing the kingdom of God and challenging the powers of, of, of darkness. I think that our relative lack of persecution might give us reason to evaluate our understanding of the kingdom and the message that we are communicating to our community. Paul and Barnabas were not deliberately being offensive. They didn't seek out persecution, but the message of a crucified king was a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but it was the wisdom of God. The message of the kingdom is a message that turns the world upside down. Are we making a difference in our world? Is Jesus our king? The kingdom belongs to those who are poor, humble, and persecuted. It belongs to those who promote the justice of God and to those who love their enemies, to those who forgive others and do not judge others, to those who do to those who do to others what they would have them do, would have others do to them, those who pray, and you can join me with this as we close, if you like, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.